is it Professor Raymond Volkus? Yep. <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't sure if it was Doctor Raymond Volkus or Professor <laughs> Raymond Volkus. I was thinking of that in my head. Either is fine. Oh, well, actually, if, if, if you if if you weren't a doctor, yeah. <laughs> Look, I've had the issue in the past with introductions. So what I'll do, I'll leave the introduction to you because I'm terrible at it. So if you could just please introduce yourself to whoever's listening and to me about your background and who you are and. I know you've got interest in piano, so if you want to add that in there too, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, my name's Ray Volkus. I'm a professor of physics at the University of Melbourne. I do research in theoretical particle physics, which I guess we'll be talking a lot about today. I also, of course, uh, lecture. So uh, this year I've been lecturing uh, quantum mechanics and uh, another subject on sort of advanced aspects of theoretical physics to third-year undergraduates. A big part of my job is also mentoring uh, research students, so graduate students, uh, masters and PhD students. Uh, that's a really uh, big and important part of my work. And a lot of the research I do is done uh, through or with these these research students. And outside of academia, yeah, I, I, uh, I dabble on the piano. I, 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 uh, I do free improvisations, if you really want to know. Yeah, so that, that's sort of my main hobby, I guess. I, re- I tried... During the lockdown, I tried learning the piano, but sort of the crossing over of the fingers, I just, I couldn't do it. I don't think I've got the motor coordination to just yeah. figure that out. I don't know. I don't yeah. know why I did well, try. You know, I started as a kid, of course. My parents forced me to do it and had classical lessons for a few years, and that helps. Um, so I don't know what it's like to start learning, learning the piano as an adult. Yeah, well, it's, from a neuro point of view, it's very different. Because you got uh, neuroplasticity in the brain yeah, as yeah, a yeah. child, yeah, it's very easy to pick things so. up. Yeah, it's yeah. very easy to pick things up. But as an adult, trying to force yourself to learn something, especially if you got all these ingrained habits, hmm. it's much harder. It's not impossible. Yep. It's just you got to force yourself out of some things to put yourself in another thing. Sure. But anyway, I digress. We'll get more on the topic of uh, theoretical physics or theoretical particles. Sorry. What is a theoretical particle? So by theoretical, do you mean hypothetical on paper, if that makes sense? No. So it's not theoretical particles, although it can be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's theoretical particle physics. Yeah. So it's about the, the fundamental structure of matter. Uh, what is everything made of? And how do those uh, elementary particles, as we call them, interact with each other? So it's the study of things like electrons, uh, which people are familiar with because that's what carries electric current. Uh, photons, which are particles of, of light and mm-hmm. electromagnetic radiation in general. Protons and neutrons, which are made of even smaller things called, called quarks. And, uh, uh, you know, most people, I think, know that an atom, uh, which we're all atoms, are, you know, what we're all made of in molecules. Fundamentally, an atom is a nucleus, which consists of protons and neutrons uh, surrounded by a cloud of electrons. And the study of all these elementary constituents of matter is what is what particle physics is. Now, there are two aspects to it, theoretical and experimental particle physicists, physics. So on the experimental side, you know, this is these are people who use instruments like the Large Hadron Collider uh, mm, yeah. uh, to to actually get data about the way the real world is, you know. And, and it's not just the LHC. There are, there are so many different kinds of experiments, some very large like the LHC, others uh, smaller. And uh, they're aimed at different aspects of uh, elementary particle physics. Uh, so uh, that's a whole discussion in itself. And then on the theory side, the word theoretical is not meant to connote uh, hypothetical necessarily. Mm. 
so theory is the systemati systematization of, of knowledge in a precise mathematical formalism, which we call a theory. So when we say theory, it doesn't mean it's something very speculative. It just means it's a... It's Possibility. A, yeah, well, no, it just means it's a systematic mathematical formalism. So for particle physics, there's something called the standard model. Is it the... The twelve is it the is it twelve twenty one? It's um, uh, twelve particles on the on the on the sample chart or something. Yeah, you you yeah. can you can find uh, uh, the usual chart easily enough through yeah. through Google Images. I have heard of it. Yeah, so I mean the standard model. It's a fairly boring name, but it's a great theory. Uh, so it's a precise mathematical mathematically precise quantum theory. Actually, it's called a quantum field theory. It incorporates uh, relativity as well because we have to deal with elementary particles uh, traveling often close to the speed of light. So you need relativity, have to go beyond Newton. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a systematic, well-defined mathematical theory for how the elementary particles interact. And you feed in to this theory, and there are some rules that you use to construct the theory, uh, which have been developed over a long period. Mm. So you feed the particles that experimentalists discover uh, into the theory, and it tells you how these particles interact with all other particles that are known. Uh, so let me go through uh, the elementary particles as we currently know them. Please. Uh, so first of all, there are what you might call material particles, particles that make up, that, that are matter particles in, in some sense. So I've already gone through the fact that ordinary matter is made of electrons and quarks, but actually there are six quarks and protons and neutrons, which which give rise to ordinary matter are made of only two of those six quarks. We call them up and down quarks. We have funny names for these things. <laughs> but as well as the up and down quarks, uh, there are two partners or families or generations, uh, as we call it, as we call them. So the up and the down quark have more massive cousins, which we call the charm and the strange quark. And then there's an even uh, there's, a, there's another replication of this pattern, which we call the top quark and the bottom quark, which are even, even more massive. And in fact, the top quark is the most massive elementary particle we've ever, we've ever discovered. I'm seeing a pattern here, up, down, top, yeah. bottom. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and, and charm and strange. So, yeah. you know, we, we, we're a little bit playful on occasions. Um, now, so, so those quarks uh, are distinguished by the fact that they interact strongly. So uh, quarks are, are very tight bound states that form protons and neutrons and, and other particles like protons and neutrons that we generically call hadrons. And the force that binds uh, quarks is, is, is very interesting. It's, it's one of the four fundamental interactions that we know about at the moment. It's called the strong interaction. And it's, it has the character that you can, never, you can never knock a quark out of a proton, for example. You can try all you like, but you can't knock it out. And that's because uh, the forces between quarks uh, get stronger as the quarks uh, move further away from each other, which How's, is very unusual. How does that work? Well, it's like there's a string between them. Think of it as there being a string between them. And as you make the string tauter and tauter, you know, the, the force, it, it becomes harder and harder to stretch it. And, and in the case of the strong interaction, that string-like force uh, is 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 of the nature that quarks can never be liberated, so we call this quark confinement. 
Because I'm, I'm thinking of it, I'm thinking of it as like a an elastic band. I can imagine that elastic band as it gets further and further, it wants to come back stronger and stronger, but eventually it will break. Snap. Yeah, and that in, is indeed what happens. Exactly. Mm. You have good insight. Um, <laughs> so yeah, these these strings uh, break, but then when they break, uh, on the ends of these strings are is a is a quark and an anti quark. Okay. Okay. Like and, a matter and antimatter. Yeah, yeah, matter and I mean antimatter goes along with this. So. Uh, therefore, you still don't liberate a quark because what 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 will happen instead is that one type of hadron will become, for example, two other hadrons or something like that. So one way or another, you can never you can never liberate uh, never liberate a quark. Nevertheless, we know they exist because if you fire, for example, electrons at very high energy into a proton, you can see them bouncing off the quarks inside the proton. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is work that was done around 1970, Nobel Prize winning work, which established experimentally uh, the existence of quarks, which are, up until that point were, were a little controversial because normally we expect, you know, we can liberate elementary particles and, 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 and watch them, you know, fly through space. But it wasn't the case with quarks. So did they really exist? Were they just a mathematical fiction or did they really exist? And it turns out they do exist. And it's just that, that they are uh, stuck together in this very unusual way uh, through this uh, interesting strong interaction. So they're the quarks. And ultimately, the strong interaction is responsible for nuclei. You know, So the re- uranium nucleus ultimately holds together, for example, because of the strong force. And what were you saying about hadrons before, where if it splits, you'd have a hadron on each side? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, well, uh, imagine you have two quarks and you mm-hmm. and you um, you take them further and further apart somehow. So they they have this string or flux tube, as we call it, that that forms between them. And and yes, eventually that that string will break. Mm-hmm. And on the two ends that are created, there will always be a quark and the corresponding anti-quark. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that the uh, action of of trying to separate a quark, uh, two quarks. Uh, is putting energy into the system, and uh, that energy eventually uh, goes into the creation of quark-antiquark pairs. Okay. All right. Now, the other material particles are electrons and its cousins. So just like um, the quarks have have two heavier families, uh, the electron also has two heavier cousins. We call them the muon and the tau, Mm. lepton. And just like... Uh, quarks come in pairs, so the up and the down quark, which form protons and neutrons, the yin and come yang. in a pair, and they're they're related to each other in a certain way. Charm and strange quarks are related. Top and bottom quarks are related. Similarly, electrons are related to another elementary particle, which we call uh, an electron neutrino. And uh, neutrinos are interesting. They they have zero electric charge, so they don't you know they don't radiate light or anything like that. They interact with electromagnetism very, very weakly. Uh, and they're very light. They have very little mass. Mm. So they're rather ghostly particles. But they're very important uh, for, for understanding the universe. And actually, there's a lot of them about. It's just that they're, they're going through your body every minute. Neutrinos are produced in the sun, for example. Mm. And they go through your body day and night uh, all, all the time because neutrinos just pass through the Earth even. So you get them get the, the solar neutrinos even at night passing through you. Something, some, uh, something you said just kind of hit a switch in my brain there, and it was um. So the neutrinos are obviously weakly interacting. Yes. 
has there ever been a argument for them possibly being dark matter? Yeah, there has been. There has been. First of all, let me just yeah continue what you're finish saying, yeah. to say that. Um, so the muon has its own neutrino. We call it a muon neutrino, and the tau has its own. So we have this interesting structure where we have the first family, which are up and down quarks, electrons, and electron neutrinos, and that pattern is replicated twice. Okay, mm-hmm. and this three-family replication structure is still not understood. Um, we know these particles exist, but we don't know why they exist. <laughs> and and you don't need those heavier cousins in order to understand ordinary matter, because mm-hmm. that's just up quarks, down quarks, and electrons. And if you want to understand beta radioactivity, you also need neutrinos. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't need the other two families. So their existence remains a stubborn mystery. And it's something I've worked on and many people have worked on. And, and we still don't know why they're there. We, we know they're there, but we really don't know what they do or what they're supposed to be doing. Well, so we know how they interact because that's what the standard model is all about. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, um, if we want to, uh, from a human point of view, you know, assign a role to each elementary particle, so we know that electrons are there to neutralize the charge of protons, for example, and to help protons and neutrons form atoms and molecules. So we can say these things have a purpose. And electron neutrinos have a purpose because they're involved in beta decay. This is when a, a neutron turns into a proton, an electron, and an antineutrino. Mm-hmm. And you know that sort of process is very important for understanding, for example, how the sun burns. You know, So we can assign a purpose to all those particles. With the heavier cousins, uh, we can't. We know, we know they exist, and we take account of them, and they... You know, they affect things like um, early universe cosmology. You know, all these particles, which are very rare now, are, and they're unstable particles, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, the neutrinos, not so much, but, but the, the, uh, the other particles, the uh, quarks and the, and the uh, muon and the tau, they're unstable particles. So it's not that they're abundant. They are produced rarely, uh, um, and, and eventually they, they decay. And but, by, but but in the early universe they were they were abundant, and by unstable do you mean sensitive? Uh, no, they're they're just unstable. So, if, uh, for example, a muon uh, will decay into an electron and a couple of uh, different kinds of neutrinos. Okay. So it has a finite lifetime. It mm-hmm. has a half life. All right. It's it's like an unstable nucleus. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned the connection between possible connection between neutrinos and dark matter. So yeah, this was possible. It, it, well, it it was a a viable hypothesis, um, you know, say thirty years ago. Okay, <laughs> uh, because you know it became clear through astronomical observations that the universe is full of an unseen material-like substance, which we which we call dark matter, and astronomers uncovered it because it gravitates, and it it gravitates in an important way. It, it, it helps to hold spiral galaxies together, for example. It's very important for understanding uh, the pattern of galaxies and, and so on that we see in the universe today. We call this large-scale structure. And without dark matter in your cosmological model, you can't understand how any of this came about, at least in the way that uh, we have seen uh, galaxies, uh, uh, sort of what, what pattern they form in terms of their distribution in the universe. To explain that pattern, uh, you need dark matter. So what could the dark matter be? It's everywhere. Actually, now we know 
that by mass density, uh, mass per unit volume, there's five times as much dark matter as there is ordinary atoms. Mm. So the stuff we understand, the stuff that the standard model of particle physics uh, accommodates or explains, whatever word you want to use, is only about four or five percent of the energy budget of the universe. And there's an additional 20 percent, which is in the in the form of dark matter. And the remainder, about 75 percent or so, is in the form of something called dark energy, which we can touch on later if you want. But anyway, so whatever the dark matter is, it's extremely important for understanding, you know, the nature of the universe today. And we don't know what it is. It's it's uh, presumably some kind of stable or extremely long lived elementary particle or maybe a set of uh, new elementary particles that are not in the standard model. They're, as we say, beyond the standard model. And it's it's one of the things that uh, I work on also. And, and a lot of other people work on as well. It's one of the major mysteries of fundamental science, actually, uh, the nature of dark matter. Uh, it definitely exists, by the way. We just <laughs> need to identify what, what the hell it is. Mm. So anyway, so, so 30 years ago, a very uh, economical and minimal hypothesis, and you know, scientists like uh, simple theories, I know science, you know, especially theoretical physics, can can seem rather complicated to, mm. to, to lay people. You know, it's very mathematical and so on. But you know, it's 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 like uh, learning to play the piano. You have to be trained in it. You know, and then and then, but we're after simplicity. You know, believe it or not, we are after simplicity, and uh, so we always like economical theories. You know, so we know the universe is full of neutrinos. They were created during the Big Bang process. So the universe is full of neutrinos, just like the universe is full of photons, which we call the cosmic microwave background, which your your listeners may have heard of. Now, in the standard model, when it was first written down, neutrinos were exactly zero mass particles, massless particles. So this is allowed by special relativity. Um, massless particles are special because they must always travel at the speed of light. You can't slow them down. You can extract energy from them, but you can't slow them down. But because these neutrinos are so abundant, if they, ha if they were just given a tiny mass, a relatively tiny mass, a mass much smaller than, than, than that of the electron, which is the lightest of the uh, other elementary particles that we know, then you could elegantly and simply and economically explain why there's this missing mass. So experiments were done at CERN. They were called the NOMAD and CHORUS experiments. My colleagues in the University of Melbourne were involved in the NOMAD experiment and other colleagues around, uh, around Australia uh, at the University of Sydney, for example, were involved in, in NOMAD. And they searched uh, for this very well-motivated hypothesis that neutrinos have mass in such a way that they explain the dark matter. And all their results were negative. So there's, there's, one, there's one fact. And then the cosmologists understood that actually neutrino mass would never have worked because it was not the right kind of dark matter to explain the distribution of galaxies that we see in the universe. And astronomers were starting to do galaxy surveys. The, the distribution of galaxies was, was becoming known uh, in, in precise detail for the first time. And uh, neutrino type, neutrino mass dark matter just didn't work, didn't give you the right answers. And that's basically because neutrinos are very light and mm. so they're moving too quickly. And because they're moving quickly... So they're hot. 
they they don't clump enough, mm. and and therefore you, you it, it turns out when you when you when you run the mathematics, uh, you can't explain uh, the the uh, distribution of galaxies that we see. So now we know that dark matter has to be a completely different kind of particle. It has to be something that's not moving very quickly, uh, so that it is able to clump under under gravitational uh, attractive force, and. There is no candidate for that in the standard model of particle physics in the elementary particles that we uh, that we know about now. So this is telling us that while the standard model is a great theory, it's been tested to very high precision. Many Nobel prizes have come out of it. It's a great theory. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It hangs together mathematically. Uh, nevertheless, it's incomplete. It's it's wrong to say it's wrong, but it is correct to say it's incomplete. Mm. And it's incomplete in a number of ways, and one of them that is that it has no dark matter. So we really want to know what the dark matter is. Mm. I'm often asked, you know, what's if you had to name one thing you wanted to know, uh, you know, what is dark matter in in your life uh, that you don't know now? I would say, what is the dark matter? Probably. Mm. You were talking about how early particles from the Big Bang are unstable. Could it theoretically be? That dark matter, because dark matter would have been present at the Big Bang. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah. Could dark matter just be that it is also unstable, and its life is just so short that by the time it's come about, if this makes sense, stop me if it doesn't. We don't have enough time to study it because it 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 dies so quickly. If that no, makes no, sense. It, it's it's not, it it has to be very long lived. Okay. It, it's either absolutely stable, uh, like electrons are absolutely stable. Or very long lived. It's got to have a lifetime that's, uh, you know, somewhat older than the age of the universe, which is about thirteen point seven billion years, because it's around today. We see it in today's universe, so it can't be an unstable particle. So what happens in the Big Bang? So the you know the Big Bang was a very hot phase mm. uh, in 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 the early evolution of the universe, and a high temperature means just a large average kinetic energy for, for particles. And when you have a lot of energy flying around, you, you, can, you can create a lot of particles. All these heavier things, heavier elementary particles I was talking about, like top quarks is the extreme example. When the temperature of the universe was high enough, if you were close enough to the Big Bang itself, there were plenty of top quarks around. And then the universe expanded and cooled, and eventually the top quarks both annihilated with antiquarks and turned into radiation, and then they also decayed away. So, you know, eventually the unstable particles disappear and what we have left today are the stable particles like electrons, protons, neutrons, photons, neutrinos. Mm. And dark matter. And dark matter. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. I've heard of a um, hypothetical, you've probably heard of this, the hypothetical particle, uh, I want to pronounce it properly, axion. Yep. Could you explain that to me? I've only heard of it briefly. Yeah. And from what I can get, it's also meant to be a hypothetical elementary particle, whatever that Yeah, means. well, <laughs> so uh, people like me are in the business of inventing hypothetical particles. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the sense in which theory can be speculative. Mm -hmm. Although the standard model is not speculative, and I want to yeah, yeah, emphasize that. that. I, yeah. I really... You know, kind of grates on me when when I hear people say, "Oh, but it's just a theory." What they mean is what they should say: it's it's just a hypothesis, and so it could be wrong. Mm. Uh, but but a theory just means a systematic mathematical 
construct mm. and uh, it may be speculative but it doesn't have to be yeah. the standard model is not speculative and general relativity is not speculative either they're both theories mm. anyway so the axion so actually i'm writing a paper with uh, uh with colleagues and and a, and a student uh, at the moment on on axions it's something uh, we work on a lot so uh, axions are hypothetical very light uh particles they are a candidate for dark matter so when we speculate about new particles to explain mysteries like what is the dark matter or how do neutrinos gain mass or the other one uh, so there are three empirical proofs that the standard model of particle physics is incomplete uh, one is that neutrinos are now known to have a non-zero mass we were talking about them as a dark matter candidate before and i said they fail as that but now we know that they have a mass that's considerably they have masses that are considerably smaller than what you need uh, for them to have constituted dark matter so they are very tiny they present a very tiny contribution to the dark matter in a way that's acceptable cosmologically but they do have mass but it's really really tiny it's like probably 10 million times uh, smaller uh, than the mass of the electron, which, as I said before, is the lightest of the other elementary particles. So what variable could they play in terms of dark matter? No, they're a very small uh, contribution to dark matter. And, mm. and in fact, you can use um, information from the distribution of galaxies uh, in, uh, fed into a cosmological model to actually give an upper bound on, on the mass of neutrinos. Mm -hmm. uh, so neutrinos... Uh, cannot be more massive than what I just said, about 10 million times uh, smaller than the mass of an electron. <laughs> so they're, they're really, really light, mm -hmm. but, but they definitely have non-zero masses. Okay. And in the standard model as originally constructed, they were precisely massless. So you need to extend the standard model to give them mass in some way. Now, there are many, many ways of doing this. This is another uh, major aspect of my research is models of how neutrino mass could arise and why these neutrino masses are so much smaller than all the other ones. But it's not that we're clueless about this. It's just that we have too many ideas and, and we haven't done the right experiments yet to be able to discriminate between these different theories. All right. Uh, so, you know, particle physics is an ongoing, uh, ongoing enterprise and uh, experiments are absolutely vital to be able to falsify theories. Now, no theorist in a human sense likes to have their theory falsified experimentally because, you know, you want to, you know, you want to be famous, right? As, well, many, many people do. Some people don't, but most people do. Everyone wants the Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, but however, it's, it's rather an honorable thing to produce a theory that can be falsified because uh, you advance science that way. Uh, you know, your theory might have been very well motivated, very reasonable, mathematically precise, self-consistent theory, very plausible, a hypothesis worth pursuing. It was pursued, experiments were done, and it was falsified. Great. Now we know that nature can't work that way. But it's an honorable thing uh, to falsify a theory. It's one of the ways that science progresses. So it's a good thing. So yeah, we need we need experiments in order to to drill down into what is the right direction to go in in the construction of our mathematical theories so anyway neutrino mass is one of the three pillars the existence of dark matter is another one and that famously has 
we know so little about dark matter. All we really know is that it gravitates and it must be moving slowly so that it can clump under the, under the attractive gravitational force and form, st- form structures. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all we know. And, and that it doesn't interact much with photons, uh, with electromagnetic radiation or light, and that's why we call it dark. Um, so that's what we know. But other than that, uh, it, it, this leaves a lot of room for what the dark matter could be. So it could be an extremely light particle like the axion, uh, which is probably even, even lighter than neutrinos, although it needn't be all the way to uh, primordial black holes, you know, which could have masses, uh, uh, you know, uh, something like the mass of an asteroid. Uh, that sort of a black hole is, is a viable candidate for dark matter. And there's, that's such a large range of mass. Mm. And, you know, a, an elementary particle with a tiny mass is a very different object from a asteroid mass black hole very. <laughs> they're very very different so and there are lots of things between those two extremes uh, that dark matter could be so again it's not that we're clueless we have a lot of ideas yes. uh, and we just need to know experimentally which if any of these is correct uh, before I talk about the axion more let me just briefly mention the third em- empirical pillar yeah. uh, why we know the standard model is inadequate or incomplete and that's the matter-antimatter asymmetry of the universe. So we've touched on antimatter already. Uh, you know, this antimatter, I think, in the in the popular imagination, seems rather weird. But we've known about it since the, the early 1930s. So you know, it, it's it's a pretty commonplace sort of sort of thing. And it just so happens that in these theories, particles like electrons have a have an antiparticle, which we call a positron. So a positron is like an electron, has exactly the same mass, interacts the same way, except its electric charge is the opposite. Negative. So electrons are negative and, yeah. posit- and positrons or anti-electrons are positive. Okay. And when an electron and a positron get together, uh, they annihilate into, into usually a, a couple of photons. Uh, okay. Uh, so, anti- but so, you know, and in, in the early universe, there were, you would think there should be equal amounts of matter and antimatter because when you create a, a matter particle, uh, you also inevitably create or it seems that way, an antimatter particle, right? Balancing-wise, you would think so. Right. However, the universe today has very little antimatter in it. We can create antimatter at great expense uh, in accelerators like the LHC. Uh, Cosmic rays create a little bit of antimatter. But other than that, there's very little antimatter around. There are there's no evidence there's anything like an anti-star, an anti-gal, you know, galaxy made of antimatter. There isn't gas between the galaxies even uh, made of anti-hydrogen or anti-helium. All of that is ruled out because when matter and antimatter get together, they produce radiation, photons, and we don't see those photons. So we we know there's very little antimatter in the universe today. But in the early universe, we would expected we would have expected naively equal amounts, equal concentrations of matter and antimatter. But evidently, for some reason or other, there had to be a little bit more matter than antimatter in the very early universe, shortly after the Big Bang. Only one part in 10 to the 10 more, very little more. But that one part in 10 to the 10 excess is what all the stars and galaxies and planets and you and me are made of today, wow. that, that, that residual stuff. And the rest of it, annihilated with anti, antimatter, 
and turned into radiation. And we've mentioned this already, the cosmic microwave background. Mm -hmm. That's where that came from. It came from particle-antiparticle annihilations in the early universe. These processes also produced a background of neutrinos, cosmological background of neutrinos. And that's why neutrino mass dark matter was very well motivated, because we know the universe is full of neutrinos. A, a, a fair while ago, a very famous uh, Soviet physicist called Andrei Sakharov, some people may have heard of him in a political context. He became a well-known uh, dissident uh, in the Soviet Union and uh, uh, was even sent into internal exile uh, for, for a period. Anyway, he's one of the greatest of the uh, Russian or Soviet scientists. And in, in uh, the late 1960s, he wrote a, an important paper uh, where he explained the basic conditions that are needed to produce a little bit more matter than antimatter in the universe. So not a specific theory, just a framework where mm -hmm. that could happen. So we know the general criteria that we need to adhere to, to, to explain the matter-antimatter asymmetry of the universe. But when you apply those criteria to the standard model, it doesn't, the standard model doesn't uh, abide by those criteria sufficiently well uh, to explain the matter-antimatter asymmetry. So uh, there has to be, again, uh, an extension of the standard model, physics beyond the standard model, to do that. So neutrino mass, dark matter, matter-antimatter asymmetry of the universe, those three things, empirically, experimentally, observationally, uh, tell us that we need a better theory. And that's what a lot of us are trying to, trying to construct. My goal in life is to play, hopefully play some role in the construction of this, of this better theory. So the axion, uh, coming back to that. Some people have big goals, some people have smaller goals. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some people want a theory of everything. Yeah. But I, I, I personally am happy, would be happy to just understand one of these three things. That's another thing. Uh, before we get on to axions, I would like to ask you about the theory of everything. Stephen Hawking saying we'll have one equation yeah. that could solve it. What is that to you? I can't imagine one equation that could have an answer to everything. Well, um, from the point of view of what we call the microscopic structure of matter mm. or microscopic physics, elementary particles and how they interact, probably there is an ultimate theory. Whether we'll ever know what it is is another, another question. And, and we may not simply because you can only do a certain range of experiments and uh, the ultimate theory may forever be beyond our reach. We may not have the technical wherewithal or the money mm. uh, to uh, uncover this theory because it typically involves uh, new elementary particles and interactions and so on that occur at very short distance scales or elementary particles that have very big masses. And, you know, these are very hard to produce uh, um, in laboratories and, in fact, impossible at the moment. Okay, so, but... You know, it's a reasonable hypothesis that there is an ultimate theory. So some physicists think it's something called superstring theory that a lot of your listeners probably have I've heard of. String theory. Have, have heard of. So uh, it's it's certainly a prime candidate. We don't know yet if uh, superstring theory actually is the correct theory, uh, but it's a candidate, and it's taken very seriously, and a lot of very smart people study it. There's no experimental evidence at the moment to tell us that it's true. So in one sense, there's an ultimate theory, probably. 
But in another sense, it won't help us uh, with certain things. Mm. Suppose you want to understand, I don't know, uh, the dynamics of the ecosystem of Australia. Yeah. Right? Mm. You're not going to turn to superstring theory. That's that's what kind of ruffled me up a bit. I'm like, did you have to call it the theory of everything? Yeah, well, of course, it's a yeah. catchy phrase. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in a reductionist sense, yes, in principle, it's a theory of everything. But you wouldn't use it directly to study biology. No. Uh, or even chemistry. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So all these other sciences have their own way of thinking about things. They have their uh, own theory of everything. <laughs> well, they have their own... They, they have their own systems of thought, yeah. if you like, uh, which require, you know, essentially coarse graining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so if you're studying chemistry, you're not concerning yourself with what the quarks are doing inside protons and neutrons. Mm. You, you're not. You're mainly worried about how the electrons are rearranging themselves, mm. you know. Uh, yeah, so you won't be doing super string theory if you're a chemist. Yeah. And it's just as well. <laughs> Uh, getting back uh, to, to the axions. axions yeah. yeah. So axions are a dark matter candidate. Uh, they're very light hypothetical particles. They solve a problem in the theory of strong interactions, which uh, I, we o opened our discussion mm -hmm. with. I was talking about strong interactions. Now, there's one mystery about them. The strong interactions in principle are allowed to behave differently between quarks and antiquarks. There's a certain term in the equations that you're allowed to write down by the rules of the game. That term in the equations comes with a number that multiplies it, which is not specified by the theory. That number has been searched for experimentally through you know, subtle kinds of, kinds of experiments. It, it, if, 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 that, if the number in front of that term in the equations was substantially non-zero, substantially non uh, then the neutron, which is an electrically neutral bound state of quarks, uh, would be an electric dipole. Uh, it would have a negative end and a positive end. It would be polar, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, so overall electrically neutral, but negative and positive charges would be separated. Mm -hmm. So it, it would have what we call an electric dipole moment. That's been searched for experimentally and not found for the neutron and also for, for other particles like electrons. And that puts an upper bound on uh, the coefficient, on, on the constant that's multiplying this otherwise allowed term in the equations of, strong, of the strong interaction. And it has to be very small, less than about 10 to the minus 10. And so the mystery is this, why, this term, which is theoretically allowed, why isn't it there? You know, why is it that it's nullified by being multiplied by a very small number, which could even be zero? You know, there we feel that there's something missing, mm -hmm. uh, that there's some other rule or some other, you know, theoretical principle that has to be brought to bear to explain the absence of this otherwise allowed term, and it's very difficult. It's very technical to explain to explain this, and I won't even try. But the axion is a byproduct of the favored theoretical explanation for why this term is absent. This is called the strong CP problem, if anyone's interested. Um, and this proposed solution uh, was suggested by two physicists called uh, Roberto Pecce and Helen Quinn. Uh, 
back in the 70s and there's a bit of local interest so Helen Quinn uh, was originally a Melbourneian and st studied uh, actually in my department uh, for the first bit of her, un her undergraduate studies and then her her family moved to the US uh, for, for work reasons so she had her career in the US anyway those two people uh, came up with an explanation uh, for why neutrons don't have this uh, electric dipole moment. And uh, a byproduct of that is a very light elementary particle called an axion, which later it was found is a viable dark matter candidate. So this is illustrates another thing. So it's not hypothetical. Oh, it's hypothetical. Okay. We haven't found it experimentally. Okay. We're, we're looking for it. Uh, well, not me personally, but yeah. you know the community is looking for it. So I'll say more about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But uh, the point I want to make first is that is that this illustrates another thing that we look for in theoretical physics, which is connections between mysteries, right? So here, Peche and Quinn uh, were trying to solve this strong CP problem, this mystery of why neutrons don't have a dipole, electric dipole moment. And as an unexpected, uh, surely unexpected benefit, uh, it turns out that their theory uh, produces a viable dark matter candidate. And at the moment, it's considered one of the major possibilities for what the dark matter could be, this axion. So we like connections between mysteries. Mm. Uh, we don't know if all these mysteries that we've talked about so far are connected or not, uh, but some of them may be. Mm. Uh, we we have, just have to try all sorts of different things, do a whole bunch of experiments, and then slowly, slowly uncover the truth. All these uh, mysteries should write a novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's no murder, though. Um, so that's what the axion is. Let me say a few words about about its status. So a lot of experiments are being done around the world uh, to, to look for the axion. For a while, it was the forgotten dark matter candidate. Uh, there was another thing called a WIMP, weakly interacting wimp. massive yeah. particles. That were that was uh, the by far the favored candidate by many physicists. But would a neutron fall in that category? Uh, no. Neutrino, sorry. Neutrino, no, no, mm. no. A WIMP is a is a very massive particle. Mm. So for a while, the axion was the forgotten dark matter candidate. But uh, a lot of people expected WIMPs to be discovered at the LHC, and they weren't. And and also in other experiments that are looking for WIMP dark matter. Uh, and so far, apart from uh, one experiment, uh, which has a controversial claim of detection, there's no evidence experimentally for WIMP dark matter. So therefore your attention turns to other candidates. And uh, a prime one is the axion. So I'm involved with um, something called the Australian Research Council Center of Excellence for Dark Matter Particle Physics. Mm. This is a well-funded uh, you know, seven-year initiative by the Australian Research Council, the ARC, to get all the relevant physicists uh, in Australia who work on dark matter together to try to uncover what kind of particle it is. Within this uh, center of excellence, which involves a number of uh, universities around the country, including including mine, uh, we're the head of it actually. There, we are not me personally, but other other members of the center are doing uh, two kinds of experiments to try to find what the dark matter is. Uh, one kind is a is a an experiment designed actually to test uh, this controversial claim uh, for a dark matter detection. And uh, that experiment is about a, the search for WIMPs. 
But at UWA, which is one of the partner institutes, uh, they're doing an Axion search experiment. Uh, they're doing one in-house in their basement. I suppose it's in their basement. Um, usually these experiments are. Um, and they're also involved with a major US experiment uh, trying to find the Axion. And, and there are a bunch of experiments around the world, uh, either active or proposed. There are many proposed experiments to try to detect the Axion because it has re-entered our consciousness, if you like, as a community, as a, as a reasonable hypothesis about what the dark matter could be. And this was a hypothesis, when did you say? Was it uh, 30 years ago? Yeah, it was in the 70s. Okay, so, so a lot longer than 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, why was it a hypothesis then, but only being tested really now? Was it just we didn't have the, the equipment? Do we just not yeah. have the funding? Was that yeah. really all it was? Actually, the story is that the original version, version of the theory produced an axion that interacted too, uh, too much uh, with ordinary particles and was actually disproved experimentally almost right away. Okay. But then, then, then the theory was extended in a very slight way to, to make the axion, we call it an invisible axion. It's, it's an axion that interacts very weakly mm-hmm. and, and that is perfectly uh, viable. But it does interact very weakly, so you need to do very sensitive experiments. Mm. Uh, so yes, you need to develop uh, the technology to do it. I, I actually don't remember when the very first Axion search experiment was done. Uh, you know, part of the game in, in this area is to invent ever more sensitive ways uh, of searching for Axions. Mm. Yeah. And these are done how with, uh, what kind of sensors are we using to try and pick up these uh, Axions? One of the main ways is that, according to the theory, an axion can interact with a magnetic field and turn into a photon, okay. a particle of electromagnetic mm. radiation. So uh, that's what they're doing at UWA and in, and in the US. Uh, they set up an instrument which has a magnetic field inside it, and they're looking for the conversion of axions to particles of light. Right. So we we know dark matter, its only interaction is with gravity. So, so far. So far. To me, it, with that being said, it makes sense to find something that has a lot of gravity to, te- to test it. So, for example, I don't know, uh, almost like a... Is there a way we can test it interstellarly with planets that have a lot more mass than us? Well... I mean, this is the way it was discovered, you know, uh, astrophysically, mm. uh, through its cumulative effect on the gravitational dynamics of galaxies and clusters of galaxies. I mean, the first evidence for dark matter was uncovered in, I think it was the 1930s, by a, a Swiss astronomer called Fritz Zwicky, mm. who, was, who was working in the US. Cool name. Hmm? Cool name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was studying clusters of galaxies. So galaxies sometimes form a gravitationally bound cluster. So you have, you know, a bunch of galaxies all kind of gravitationally bound to each other. And what he did was measurements of the speeds of these galaxies. And he found they were moving too quickly for the cluster to stay together. The cluster should just fling apart. apart. And so he said, well, the, the obvious explanation for that is that there's something inside the cluster that's providing uh, like more gravitation, more gravitational attraction, mm. and and keeping the uh, the galaxies which we can see through the fact that they're shining in light, you know, together, and so he called it uh, 
uh, dark matter. Actually, he used German, and I won't try to pronounce it, uh, <laughs> but it's translated as, as dark matter. So that's how, how, that's how it started. And, and so he was using galaxies, you know, which have a lot of mass. So the fact that, that dark matter gravitates is how it was, how it was discovered that it exists. Mm. But through gravitational data, like you get from astrophysics and cosmology, uh, you will never understand what kind of elementary particle or particles it is, and then how the standard model should be extended to accommodate uh, these these new particles. Uh, you need, we need, we have to hope that while dark matter doesn't interact with ordinary particles very much, only gravitationally so far, that it does have some interaction with elementary particles. So let me explain a little bit how uh, you look for a WIMP, uh, which is uh, the experiment that our, that there, well, there are many experiments around the world and we're, in, we're currently building, building one, which is gonna go uh, into a new um, underground physics lab, uh, in a, a kilometer underground uh, in the Stahl gold mine uh, in Western Victoria. Uh, so this uh, new laboratory, it's the first underground physics lab in the Southern Hemisphere. Construction uh, was completed you know, several months ago, and uh, now uh, the experiment is being assembled and eventually will be transported down in the mine. And you go underground because you need to shield the detector from uh, cosmic rays, which are bombarding us all the time. Mm. And uh, there's so many, the flux of cosmic rays is so great that they mask a very weak dark matter detection signal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you go a kilometer underground so that the, the cosmic rays are all uh, dissipated. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, this is a, a detector. Uh, the detector element in, in the case of our experiment, which is called SABER, uh, is made of sodium iodide, which is a, a well-known sort of detector material. And uh, sodium iodide, like all matter, has nuclei inside it, sodium nuclei, iodine uh, nuclei. And so what they're looking for is evidence that one of these nuclei, or maybe both, but one of them, suddenly gets a kick and recoils for no apparent reason. So, you know, say a sodium nucleus is quietly sitting there in the detector and suddenly it shoots off. The th evidently it was hit by something, but you can't see what that something was. And so you want to identify the thing that gave the nucleus a kick as a dark matter particle colliding with it. A very rare event, if it happens at all. But we have to hope uh, that it happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, uh, you know, you might have to you know, watch this detector for several years to see a signal. Uh, uh, yeah, so there's no guarantees mm -hmm. uh, that that's the way, that first of all, that dark matter has the right nature to kick a nucleus that way. Uh, if it's an axion, uh, that will not happen. You need to do completely different kinds of experiments, and we just talked about that. But if dark matter is a wimp, uh, then the sort of sodium iodide type experiment and other, other substances like xenon are, are also used. Uh, that's what you need uh, to discover wimp, wimp type dark matter. Uh, and, and of course, you, know, you have to make sure that, uh, suppose you, 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 you do the experiment and you see nuclei shooting off for no apparent reason. Uh, you have to ensure that it really, that the only reasonable hypothesis for what gave it the kick 
was dark matter and not something else. So you mentioned neutrons before. Uh, they are a bit wimp-like, actually, and and you know because they're electrically neutral. You know, if a, if there's a spray, if there's a not spray, if there's a stray neutron uh, that is produced in some way, uh, for example, a cosmic ray liberates a neutron and the neutron zips through the detector, and it 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 hits a nucleus, and the nucleus recoils. You have to eliminate the possibility that your nuclear recoil signal is due to what we call a background. You know, it's a a background is a, a phenomenon that happens that looks like the signal you're you're after, uh, but isn't caused by the source that you want. So you know, the experimentalists always have to do a lot of hard work to figure out how to eliminate all these sources of background that can mimic uh, the signal you're looking for, like gravity and stuff. These are all indirect interactions and now what you're talking about is direct, direct. interaction. In fact, these are called direct detection experiments. Mm. Now there was I heard of this maybe 2 years ago there was an apparent direct detection, right? It was called was it Dharma? Dharma, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is the controversial experiment. Mm. Uh, it's called Dharma Libra. It's yeah, done that's in the one. done yeah. in Italy. It's been going for a long time now, a few decades. Uh, it's in a un- big underground lab uh, under a mountain called Gran Sasso, uh, east of Rome. Mm. This is one of the world's foremost un- underground. Well, it's it's underground in the sense that it's in a mount under a mountain, <laughs> right? Uh, it's you know it's off a road tunnel and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. So Dharma Libra uh, have a very interesting signal claim detection of a signal. What the, what they used is is a different phenomenon that you expect with uh, WIMP dark matter. So WIMP dark matter should be everywhere. If it's a WIMP, and in fact, if it's axions, the axions are everywhere, and these WIMPs are everywhere. They're passing through us at the moment, right? Over the course of a year, the Earth goes once around the sun, mm-hmm. but the solar system is embedded in a cloud of WIMPs, mm-hmm. if, if dark matter is WIMPs. So sometimes the Earth is heading into the WIMP wind, and sometimes it's going in the same direction as the wimp wind because the sun is also going around the galaxy. Mm. When the earth is heading into the wimp wind, the wimps will produce a greater, a bigger signal. Yeah. And when instead they're a sort of a tailwind... It's kind of like riding your bike into the wind. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, uh, six months later, you, you will have a diminished signal. So you expect a, a direct detection signal, a wimp nucleus collision mm-hmm. signal to modulate over a period of exactly one year and with a certain phase. By phase, I mean uh, you get a maximum event rate at a certain time of year and a minimum six months later. And we know exactly when the maximum should be. And uh, Dharma Libra uh, have seen an annual modulation with a period of exactly a year and with a phase which is consistent with uh, dark matter nucleus collision processes. The thing is, and it's a very, very statistically significant uh, signal, if you ask, you know, what are the chances uh, that this nice sine wave which they see, you know, is a fluke, uh, the answer is one in a gazillion. It's, 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 they've seen something and they claim it's dark matter. However, 
The reason it's controversial is that a whole lot of other dark matter detection experiments have been done, which by and large should have been sensitive to exactly the same kind of WIMP. Because they were done in a similar way. Uh, not necessarily, no. These other experiments that uh, contradict Dharma and not don't use this annual modulation effect. Uh, they using a different, you know, different um, uh, methodology. Uh, nevertheless, they're probing the same kind of physics, the same kind of wimp dark matter, and so there are a whole bunch of experiments that have got negative results uh, that are in contradiction with the positive result of Dharma Libra under the wimp usual wimp hypothesis. There are ways you can wiggle out of this, but. Uh, it, to most people, it seems like a, a contradiction. It would just be nitpicking, yeah? Well, the origin of the Dharma Libra signal is a genuine mystery. And one of the motivations for the experiment that our people are doing uh, down the Stahl Gold Mine and a couple of other similar experiments around the world, there's one in Spain and, and one in Korea, they're replicating the Dharma Libra setup and looking for an annual modulation in order to test the Dharma uh, dark matter hypothesis using a very similar kind of experiment. So the null results from the other experiments, there's always wiggle room, you know, because it's not exactly the same target material, for example. Mm. So you can all, you know, if you're clever enough, you can invent a way in which there would be a signal in Dharma Libra and no signal in the other other experiments. It's hard to do that, but you know you can't absolutely discount the possibility that that nature works in this unusual manner. So, from a scientific point of view, from an experimental point of view, you want to test the Dharma Libra claim as precisely as possible using the same technology, because you know it could be that Dharma Libra made a mistake. It could be that there's a background process. Uh, I talked about backgrounds before that mimic the dark matter annual modulation signal. And while, of course, the, the Dharma Libra collaboration, it's a bunch of people, uh, it's a collaboration, uh, while they examined all the sources of backgrounds that they could think of and, and other people around the world independently of them have done the same thing. Uh, and, you know, the, the result is they think that there's no plausible background uh, process that can give you that that same signal. Nevertheless, you know it could be that there's some background that nobody's ever thought of, which is very unusual. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, so like a hypothetical background. Yeah, a hypothetical background, which would be some relatively mundane, probably process, but unusual, something no one's ever thought of. So, so it seems it seems weird that that would be the case. So discovering something no one's ever thought of just by accident. Yes. Yeah, that's possible. Or, or maybe they made some other mistake. I mean, we don't know. So uh, I think from a scientific point of view, it's valid to test the Dharma Libra claim uh, with a similar kind of experiment as possible so that there's no wiggle room. Mm. So if, if our experiment uh, gets a null result and these other two in Spain and Korea get null results, uh, then there won't be any wiggle room. 
then the mystery will remain, you know, why is it that Dharma saw something? Um, but we know it won't be dark matter. So let me let me tell you the kind of thing it could be. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that the dark matter signal phase is pretty well correlated with the summer winter cycle. Okay. Yeah. And one thing that happens between summer and winter is that the uh, atmosphere gets thicker and thinner. Mm-hmm. And when the atmosphere gets thicker and thinner, it affects the amount of cosmic rays that are impinging on the Earth. And, and therefore, the cosmic ray flux also modulates annually mm-hmm. with a very similar phase to the dark matter signal. So, you know, one of the main background hypotheses is, is that there's something to do with the way that cosmic rays interact uh, with the rock around uh, the Grand Sasso lab uh, that liberates neutrons or something uh, that that mimics uh, a dark matter signal, and yes, it will uh, modulate over a period of a year, and it just so happens that the phase is also the same as the dark matter signal in the northern hemisphere. And this is a good reason for why you need to do a similar experiment in the southern hemisphere, because then uh, this seasonal effect, this winter summer cosmic ray atmospheric uh, thickening and thinning effect, has the opposite phase. Mm. So if our if our experiment were to see a signal, but with exactly the opposite phase from Dharma, that would indicate that it's something to do with the summer winter changes in temperature. Okay. And mm. it won't identify necessarily what that something is, mm. uh, but it will be very strong evidence that that's what's going on. So we 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 need to we need to get to the bottom of uh, the Dharma Libra result. Is it a mistake? Is it a, an unaccounted for background or is it dark matter? Something that's, wh- when was this experiment done? Oh, it was started, I think in the, in the nineties. Was that, re- was that when they uh, supposedly detected the dark matter in the nineties? That's when it first came to prominence. Yes. And they've been continuing ever since. Cause what's, so that they, they actually are continuing the same experiments. Because what's what's kind of bothering me is um, when we talk about simulating an experiment, but not to its ex- exact detail. Let, if I do, let's take an analogy. Let's say I throw a ball, and the distance that I throw it just happens to break a world record, right? And then people say, "Oh, I don't believe you. I need to see it again." Even if I attempted it fifty times and it doesn't come back. I'll I'll keep attempting it until I do it again. So why haven't we why why didn't they repeat the same experiment over and over again until they found this little blip in their radar that they found? It to me it it almost doesn't make sense why they didn't try and instantly do it again. Well, no, I mean uh, the Dharma collaboration did continue to take data and they even upgraded their detector. So that's when it became Dharma Libra rather than oh, Dharma. That's okay, what yeah. that's what yeah. that means. Okay. So they continued, but it's the same bunch of people. It's the same basic apparatus, and it's in the same location. So what we really want is independent confirmation or independent refutation mm. you know, of, of their signal. So as, as I said, I mean, a, a bunch of other non-annual uh, modulation experiments have seemingly contradicted their result. Uh, as a, you know, in in terms of its dark matter interpretation, mm. um, but because they're not exactly identical experiments, there's still some in principle wiggle room. Um, so that's why independent 
physicists, our people, the, Span the people working on the Spanish experiment and the Koreans. These are all independent people. Uh, that's why it's important for uh, those experiments to succeed and to hopefully definitively test the mm. Dharma, Dharma hypothesis. So we'll, we'll, you know, we, we will see what happens. Mm. Moving a little bit on from dark matter, we'll uh, get a bit more onto dark energy as we spoke about earlier on in the conversation. Can you give a small briefing to what dark energy or theoretically, I should say, what dark energy could be? Yeah. So first of all, as I mentioned uh, earlier, it, it makes up you know, about three quarters of the energy budget of today's universe. That's why it's so interesting. <laughs> right. So it's huge. It wasn't always the case. In the early universe, it was a negligible component uh, of the energy budget, but now it dominates. And it's giving rise to an interesting thing. Uh, the, you know, everyone knows the universe is expanding, but rather than the expansion slowing down, as you would expect, Speaking you know, because there's matter inside the universe and gravity is attractive. So you would think uh, all that matter should be slowing down the expansion. But instead, the expansion is speeding up. It's accelerating. This is what uh, was discovered by astronomers uh, uh, you know, a couple of, couple of decades ago. And in fact, the uh, vice chancellor of the Australian National University, Brian Schmidt, was one of the people who got the Nobel Prize uh, for, for, for this discovery. I would just like to compliment you on your name recall. Throughout this whole conversation, you've just been so good at name recalls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, and so so dark energy is an unusual form of energy. It is also called vacuum energy. Now, it's not the energy in your vacuum cleaner. Uh, the vacuum uh, in technical physics is simply the lowest energy state of, of a system. Uh, so here we're talking about the lowest energy state of the universe. So vacuum doesn't connote a state of nothingness. It's, uh, it's just a, a, the lowest energy state that the universe can be. And um, this state can have, a, have an energy or an energy density. And uh, we call that vacuum energy, but it's now more poetically called dark energy. So it's about how vacuum gravitates. Mm. That's what it's all about. And this form of gravitation from Einstein's theory of general relativity, we know it has this unusual feature uh, that it would cause an expanding universe to accelerate in its expansion. Now, what could it be? Well, there's a relatively simple thing it could be. Uh, Einstein is famously famous for having said that a certain thing was the biggest mistake of his life. That certain thing was a... a Black holes. No. No, something called the cosmological constant. Ah, oh, I think I've heard yeah. of this. Yeah, so there's a certain heuristic way that you can uh, sort of motivate the form of Einstein's field equations. These are the equations that you have to solve uh, to understand gravity and, and the expansion of the universe and, and, and so on, and gravitational waves and black holes, right? Those equations, complicated equations. Uh, now... In those equations, it's, it's a little bit like uh, the story of strong interactions before, where I said there was a term in the equations that was allowed, but it's multiplied, it seemingly, by a small number, which may be zero, right? And we talked about that in the context of axions. It's a bit like that uh, with general relativity. There's a term that's allowed in the equations, which is multiplied by a number, which we usually call lambda. Mm. 
and uh, Einstein called it the cosmological constant. Now, he introduced it for a, a reason he later regretted. The reason he introduced it is that uh, when you solve, when, when people solved his equations for the universe, uh, they in inevitably found that the universe was predicted to be expanding. But at the time, this was a very strange idea that the universe could be expanding. Everyone sort of thought that a static universe was a more reasonable hypothesis. The universe appears to be static, mm. you know, unless you look very carefully, mm. right? So, but his equations, when solved for in the cosmological setting, produced expanding space times. And he didn't like that. So he wanted to find a way to, to fiddle with his equations to stop space times from expanding. And so he found the cosmological constant could do that now and, and produce a static universe. Now, it's, it's not a very good static universe. It's, it's very artificial what he did. And, and then Hubble, Edwin Hubble, uh, discovered that the universe was expanding. And so then Einstein said, oops, uh, actually, I should have believed my own equations. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. he should have, he didn't believe the consequences of his own equations. Mm. Okay, so it turned out to be a triumph. His equations say the universe is expanding, and indeed mm. it is. Now, although he introduced it for a, an incorrect reason, <coughs> nevertheless, that term is allowed by the mathematics. Theoretical physicists talk about this thing called the cosmological constant problem. Mm -hmm. For a long time, what everyone thought was reasonable, both theoretically and because of the evidence, was while the cosmological constant term is allowed, the value of lambda, this number that multiplies that term, is really small and probably zero. And so the cosmological constant problem was to come up with a deep explanation for why this otherwise allowed parameter was in fact exactly zero. And it became a very famous problem uh, because no one could think of a good reason for why it should be zero. But just intuitively, it just seemed like this was the best thing to shoot for, mm. that it should be zero. Certainly the effects of a cosmological constant cosmologically were not leaping out at us. It wasn't obvious that this uh, capital lambda uh, was non-zero until Brian Schmidt and, and others uh, did those measurements and proved that the expansion of the universe is in the early stages of accelerating. And even prior to that, uh, there were some inconsistencies that had emerged uh, in, in, in astrophysics. So for example, some stars uh, seem to have ages which were older uh, than the universe itself, which is obviously impossible. But that was within a cosmology of a zero cosmological constant. Yeah. And if you made it non-zero, you could fix up that inconsistency. So I remember hearing talks about that even before the accelerated expansion of the universe was discovered. So the constant is there. So the most reason, the most simple explanation for dark energy is that it's a cosmological constant. It's not zero, but it, it is extremely small. And the extremely small measurement value that's been measured for it is still a theoretical problem. You know, it's a bit like neutrino masses, but probably more profound. You know, mm. why are these things so small? Mm. So, uh, you know, at the moment, the data are completely consistent with it just being a cosmological constant. Sometimes you hear people say, in fact, you often hear it, and it sort of annoys me a little bit, 
that, oh, the dark energy, it's so mysterious. We don't have the faintest idea what it is. Well, actually, we do. Uh, it's the same term that Einstein introduced mm. uh, you know, a century ago. Mm. So, you know, it could just be that. The mystery is in why it's so tiny. Okay, so that's that's dark energy. So uh, it, it's a big topic in cosmology. It, it's, it's at the interface between astrophysics, cosmology, and particle physics. And while... Uh, I would I would argue that the cosmological constant is the simplest explanation for dark energy. It may not be the correct explanation. It might be something more complicated going on. And so one other hypothesis is that the dark energy is not actually a constant, but it's evolving. It's changing with time. That the amount of dark energy in the universe uh, has not remained the same, but has is evolving. So that the that the cosmological constant isn't a constant, but it's a field uh, that is changing with time. So it's not, as you said, it's not zero, but what it is is changing. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. So um, in in I'm not an expert on this, but in mm. in these kind of theories, you would want to you would try to explain through a process of dynamical evolution. That one kind of gave me a headache. <laughs> Which <laughs> that one? It's it's how it's changing like that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it it could be that it's um, it that it's a type of field. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people are familiar with force fields like magnetic fields, yeah, electric yeah. fields, and so on. But there are all kinds of other fields around. There's a Higgs field, for example, mm-hmm. which is permeating the whole universe. Uh, so there could be some other kind of field whose energy density is being misinterpreted as vacuum energy. Okay. Okay. And that the something changes with time. You know, just like, uh, you know, you can have magnetic fields that change with time. Mm. You could have another kind of field that is giving rise to the dark energy, which is changing with time. Uh, it's a more complicated model for what the dark energy could be, but it at least holds out holds the prospect of, providing a, a kind of a dynamical explanation, maybe, uh, for why the dark energy is so small. I, I'm not aware that this approach has been terribly successful, but uh, again, I'm not an expert, so I, I, I probably shouldn't say any more. We were talking about um, uh, matter, antimatter. Is dark energy just anti-gravity? Mm. Uh, not really. I mean, anti-gravity, as far as we know, doesn't exist. Although mm. I, uh, you know, I understand why you ask that because it's, it's, it's kind of a repulse has a yeah. repulsive character to it. So yeah, I mean, it it manifests in an anti-gravity-like way, but but we don't call it anti-gravity. Uh, we we call it this other funny thing, mm. vacuum energy. Uh, I mean, of course, to explain all this properly. Mm. You know, you need to understand general relativity, so it's a bit of palaver uh, to mm. <laughs> to explain it. So, calling it anti gravity kind of be like a people might is- misinterpret it. As yeah, something. yeah, yeah. It might you might misinterpret that to mean that, say, between the Earth and the Sun, mm. there's a repulsive force, uh, right? Okay. Which is not the case. Yeah, right. This is dark energy. Okay. Is something that permeates the whole of space time and is causing the fabric of space-time itself mm. to expand in an accelerating manner. Okay. Because dark matter has an interaction with gravity, with that being said, would it have some sort of interaction with dark matter? Dark- maybe, maybe I'm only thinking that because dark matter, dark energy, you know. But 
would it have some sort of interaction if it does behave like gravity in some sense? The gravitational effect of dark matter mm. and of dark energy, are, uh, the gravitational effects of those two dark components of the yeah. universe are very different. Mm -hmm. Matter, for example, clumps. Mm. There's no evidence that whatever is causing dark energy that that clumps. clumps. It looks completely homogeneous throughout mm. the universe uh, at this point anyway. Mm. So these do look like different things. And, and as I say, I think the, the most reasonable hypothesis is dark matter is some form of unknown matter and, and dark energy is, is vacuum energy. However, there are some physicists around the world who speculate about a, a, a deep connection between the two, an interaction between dark matter and dark energy. I know relatively little about, about this work, mm. uh, but there is some work to that effect. You, you know, so, you know, a, a, a mystery if you like, uh, today, is why, why are we living in the epoch where dark energy is just starting to take over, mm. dominating the energy budget of the universe and causing the expansion to accelerate? This is called the why, or used to be called the why today problem, okay? Not Y2K, but why <laughs> today problem, you know? Why are we living at this special, special yeah. epoch? And, you know, the energy density of, of dark energy versus dark matter is, you know, roughly three to one, four to one, something like that. So, you know, that's fairly similar, three to one, four to one. Mm. Maybe they interact with each other and maybe you can therefore provide a, a deep explanation for why uh, the resulting energy densities are somewhat similar. Uh, that's the kind of motivation that I think the people, the small number of people who work on this kind of thing use mm. I heard a quote once I'd like to get your thoughts on it it was basically how dark energy could just be you've obviously heard the multiverse theory yep. there's hypothetical explanation for dark energy could just be another universe's gravity yeah. interacting with ours yeah 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 well no so the multiverse so multiverse. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to bring that up. <laughs> uh, I have I have enough trouble with one universe, yeah. let alone especially with dark matter. <laughs> Ten to the five hundred universes. Yeah. Um, uh, one possible explanation for the cosmological constant problem, or, or why the dark dark energy density is so small, is what we call an anthropic explanation. So here, the idea is that there is no deep theoretical reason for why the dark energy should be so small. But there is a whole range of different bubbles of space-time, which we call the multiverse, each of them kind of their own universe. And in these different space-time bubbles or universes, conditions are different. And fundamental parameters like the dark energy density is different. And so these things are distributed in, in some way. Uh, and the dark energy in, 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 in other universes has a different value and it's much larger. And each of say. these universes, the anti to uh, matter to antimatter could be different as well. Yeah, it could yeah. be different. All sorts mm. of things could be different. Then the anthropic explanation goes like this. Suppose the dark energy density in, the, in our universe was huge. If it was huge, the universe would have undergone this exponential 
uh, acceleration uh, really quickly, and there would have been no chance whatsoever for any stars or planets or humans to form. Mm. So the fact that we're around and observing and being astronomers and so on is telling us that there can't have been that much uh, dark energy density around uh, because having a lot of it around is inconsistent with the existence of intelligent life, which takes time to evolve. Mm -hmm. This is called an anthropic explanation. And if you, if you have, like in the multiverse, superstring landscape uh, vision, 10 to the 500 or thereabouts different universes that actually exist, and we live in only one of them, then, you know, a small fraction, maybe a tiny fraction of this 10 to the 500 have very small values for the energy density. Mm. But we would only come into existence in that tiny fraction. Wow. So it's a selection effect. The fact mm. that, that we have come to exist is telling us we have to be in a universe with a very small uh, dark energy density. It's a mathematical statistic. Yeah, we, we are living in an, in, a, in an unusual universe because it's only unusual universes that live for long enough for intelligent life to evolve. Because this is all predicated on, on the existence of this 10 to the 500 or thereabouts uh, different mm. space-time bubbles, mm. which are effectively different universes. This is something that seems to come out from superstring theory combined with a cosmological hypothesis called inflation. Mm. Anyway, put the two together, and it looks like this is what comes out. So, I mean, I, you know, there, there are people that favor this, this kind of explanation that there's no deep reason dark energy is small. It's a, effectively a selection effect. Mm. It's like, uh, you know, uh, going back to the time of Johannes Kepler, right, who was one of the early physicists, you know, in the Middle Ages who first started constructing a systematic theory of the motion of planets in the solar system. He was worried about uh, things like, well, why is the Earth to sun distance and the Mars to sun distance certain values, right? Oh, why is everything so perfect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and there were platonic solids and so on that, you know, he tried to use. And now we know that trying to understand why the Earth-sun distance is a particular value is not an interesting... It's arbitrary. Yeah, I mean, it's an accident of... Mm of uh, complicated uh, dynamics of a gaseous nebula, nebula that then coalesced and planets formed here and there, but there's no deep reason for any one planet to be a certain distance from, the, from its star. It kind of just sounds like he's trying to put human meaning on it, if that makes sense. So like well, yeah, I mean, at the time he was, Kepler was working, I mean, I, you know, it was a re reasonable hypothesis to try that. Now we know it was a complete dead end. Oh, what I mean by human meaning is uh, like, so the Earth and the Sun are this far apart, which gives rise to perfect human creation conditions. Right, right, you know right, I mean? right. Yeah. So that must be like some sort of we're really a, just a mathematical statistic. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. We have to be in this sort of habitable. Our mm. planet, planet Earth, has to be in this habitable habitable zone. Yeah. Which is why exoplanet people, you know, are looking for smallish planets that are in the habitable zones of yeah. their stars. You know. Mm. Sure. So yeah, I mean, the Earth-Sun distance then becomes a, an environmental accident. So effectively, in the anthropic explanation, the cosmological constant or the vacuum energy or the dark energy becomes an environmental accident. Mm. I, I'm not sort of super attracted to that idea, but 
you know, it's uh, one that is, you know, you can you can certainly construct a line of argument where that sort of explanation becomes reasonable, and and it is it is possible. Uh, you know, I, I hope it, you know my again, it's a human reaction, but I, I hope it isn't correct uh, because I, I would be more satisfied with very fundamental things like the value of the vacuum energy actually having a deep reason for it rather than it being consigned to the same, you know, disinterest as or lack of interest as the Earth's sun distance. Whereas the other equation creates more problems. <laughs> well C- creates more work really. I mean. Oh the multiverse. Yeah. The thing is it's 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 kind of a logical extrapolation mm. of superstring theory, the candidate theory of everything. Yeah. And and cosmology, inflationary cosmology. So, you know, but it's a, it's a big extrapolation and, uh, you know, it, it does assume that we've understood all of this physics precisely. And, for example, it requires the application of quantum mechanics, which is the theory, started out as the theory of the very small, you know, mm. elementary particles and atoms and so on, uh, to the universe as a whole. Mm. And not just to our universe, but to ten to the five hundred other ones. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so do we really know that quantum mechanics applies on these very large scales, or you know, maybe it breaks down at some distant scale? You know, and do we that have to use sense. something else? So, you know, I'm always wary about these huge extrapolations that are made. But if you if you have this hypothesis that relativity is exactly correct, quantum mechanics is exactly correct, superstrings is theory of everything and inflationary cosmology is necessary then put those together and you get the multiverse i think that's probably a rigorous statement raymond it was really good uh having you on the podcast but uh before i wrap things up uh for the listeners if they would like to ask you any questions or if they would like to follow you via social media or something like that is there anywhere that they can find you and follow your work and get in contact with you uh well i'm on X, the thing formerly known as Twitter. Um, oh. You, you, oh, yeah, it's X now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, man, I forgot about that. I'm, I'm not on Twitter, but I did hear that it got changed to X. But look, that's neither here nor there. I, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, that's a topic for another interview, I think. Not with, uh, yeah. not, and not with me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I. <laughs> so I'm on that and yeah. I can be found there. Okay, on Twitter. Okay, God, yeah. X. And uh, it's easy enough to find my email address. Raymond, it was uh, so good talking to you. And uh, thank you for this, I would say, lesson on uh, particle physics. It was uh, really good. And for anyone who was listening, I hope you learned something too, as well as I did. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. And thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you.